Good morning, everybody. It's great to be here today. And I want to welcome our Facebook audience. We, we know you're out there. We're glad you're with us today. And we do miss having you here and that you find yourself in a position you, you have to see us online. thought it'd take just a brief minute to um, explain uh, our Facebook policy with regard to our service. If you're part of the Crosspoint member, member Facebook page, then you uh, will be able to see the whole service. If you're not, the public part is, um, I'm not sure exactly if we're showing the, the words to the music, but we're not broadcasting anything but this part to the public, um, just for your privacy, since we can't control who's watching. And the reason we tell you these little things along the way kind of goes a little hand in hand with our topic today is because we, we want to explain as leaders why we do all the small things we do so you understand how we're thinking. Um, we always stand to be corrected on that, um, but most things we do are with a more conservative viewpoint as far as um, keeping your uh, privacy intact as you attend here. Not, we know it's a public setting, but nevertheless. So if you notice a difference, if you try to log on the Facebook, the public Facebook page, you might not see the worship service or the people, and that's intentional. So I really applaud the VBS effort this year. It's pretty uh, astonishing when I see all the work you guys put into it. And <clears throat> I was so impressed with how Nick and Sarah did the presentation where she came up and did the, the, the uh, little thing. I thought maybe Eva would come up and help me today as I deliver this kind of heavy topic on church abuse. Maybe that would help liven this up a little bit. No, not, not, we're not doing that. But it was a funny thought. So, um, so I do have some caveats this morning with our topic, uh, just to remind you and be sure that you understand where we're coming from. And that is, first of all, Nathan did mention it, that the timing of this message was not planned with circumstances that are going on in the community. Um, we have been working through the subject of sanctuary all this year. Sanctuary in our personal lives, sanctuary in the home, and sanctuary in the church. And um, a particular book we've uh, been using to kind of reference certain things and keep us focused is called Redeeming Power and Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church. And like any book, there's things that we don't agree, but we've been using it as grist to talk about this subject. And so I've been planning this subject for about four months now uh, because it's a little near and dear to my heart. Those of you that know um, that we've seen a lot of abusive environments, even in this town uh, through the years, and we're very interested in making sure that we don't become a kind of church that models those behaviors and we will talk about some of those today um, <clears throat> because we want to operate and be held to the same biblical standards that we, we talk about and we put before you. And we want to be held to those same standards. And I was thinking a little bit about it this morning with regard to um, the whole dynamic of church leaders using, maybe even not abusive, but using pressure tactics in the church to accomplish the church business. And I was, I was thinking back on the life of our church and, and Grace Community Church over the last 30 years and realizing if you look at it objectively, you'll see that with a complete absence of all of that, about no pressure to give, no pressure to um, you know, build a new building, 
no pressure to come to work days, inordinate pressure. All of these things, God has blessed these ministries in spite of it. And when we drag our human desires to see the church prosper, that often translates itself into pressure on people to act and do and give and all those things most of you have seen. Well, we have an everyday example to see that God can work without us pushing, without us manipulating, without us abusing people in the church. So we're going to think about that today. And probably the majority of the people in here will be thinking of experiences in life you've had in other places or you've heard about or your family was involved in. And I encourage you to mull that over today. That's the whole point of raising the topic. Um, and finally, this morning is going to be a rule breaker. I don't have three points for you. I don't have an outline for you. I have an outline in my head. And I'm not exegeting a scripture, so maybe I'm not supposed to be up here. I don't know. But anyway, it's, I'm going to drive through this topic as I felt necessary to focus on the broader church and then we want to bring it home to us because we are not beyond as people desiring to control other people. So at the end of it, that's really what we, we want to bring it home to. It's easy to point the finger to others, but we must examine our own selves. And finally, for any kids that are here I, I, or adults, I put a word search puzzle back in the back that was supposed to be with the uh, the bulletin for uh, that's relevant to the passage kind of gives uh, kids something to do uses some of the words that uh, I will be using today <clears throat> somebody brought up to me they thought it was strange they're going to have the kids look for the word abuse in a puzzle but if they're paying attention and maybe they'll ask you some questions let's pray father thank you that you are with us every moment thank you that your holy spirit is with us and that you will be enlightening our eyes through your word today to the life of the church and ultimately to our hearts, which tend to run toward darkness, self-interest, self-gratification. And Father, we want to be people who are submitted to you in your spirit and especially the sanctification process. So today, work in our hearts and our minds and let us see you more clearly in how you work in your church. Amen. So we need to, I want to make some introductory comments, and I want to look at the history of the church just ever so briefly to set the right, how did we get here kind of a, a tone. <clears throat> but throughout history, in the church and in the world, it's not hard to see one of the main problems in the world is that men desire to rule over other men and women. You know, this is seen in Scripture really clearly as far as the genesis, I believe, of this in 1 John 2, 16. It says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And I believe in those three categories, you can probably drop any sin you can think of into one of the three categories. This is the world and how the world follows their desires and this is often in the church in individual people and sometimes in church leadership and so when things start to go awry you'll find expressions of one of these three areas 
that's the problem, and underlying it often is the desire for power over people or over the organization, because it's just in our lost nature. And these are the driving forces behind why people seek power and abuse others. I remember briefly there was a, um, there was a news story about a young Russian soldier that was in Ukraine, and I, I don't think I mentioned this before, and he had been doing terrible things to people. Some months before, he was just doing whatever he was doing in his normal life back home. And he called his wife and he told her that he found some pleasure in these evil things he was doing. And that really stunned me. And I thought, why is that? Why? How could that happen to someone you would never expect to? And I, the longer I thought about it, the more I realized that he was in a situation where everything was out of control in his life. And here was a moment when he had control. And he needed control so bad, he did things he never thought he could possibly do, and he said he enjoyed it. And that's really a stunning way to realize how dark the human heart is and how rapidly it can go down that rabbit hole and how it can drive us. Christians are not above the potential for these lusts, and many will succumb in subtle ways. Worse is the propensity of Christian leaders to use and abuse power and consider it within their God-given right. The worst thing is abuse coupled with it's in Jesus' name or it's within my right as a Christian leader. That's the worst kind. So my primary goal today is for us to think about evaluating leaders and then ultimately how do we look inward to ourselves and see how we might be mirroring the principles in our life, maybe as a boss, maybe as a husband or wife. How do I try to do that to other people in surprising ways? So I think the problem began with Adam and Eve. Think about that. Satan appealed to them by saying, you'll be as gods. You'll see and understand like God does, which means you'll be able to control things. What happened with Cain and Abel? You know, jealousy and murder right from the beginning of time as human beings. Cain was angry. He had lust of the flesh. He wanted to do this worship thing his way, not God's way. And he murdered his brother because of it. He took power and control, ultimate abuse of murder. If you read through the Old Testament, particularly in Isaiah, or, or the passages that talk about the nation of Israel and Judah and the times of the kings, if you kind of read through that over a period of time, you, you begin to grow weary because there were about five good kings and like 33 bad kings. And you're like, can they ever get it right? Good king honors God, worships God, bad king, two, a couple come along and exerting power, subjugating people and showing us how bad it can really be. We go forward to the New Testament. We have who? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. What are they doing? Putting burdens on people that rules that they don't even have to follow or that they follow aggregating to themselves honor and power. Matthew 23, 4 says about them, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, 
and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. Common, common today. Probably easiest to see because it's public with politicians. I mean, how many times do we see it over and over if you pay attention at all? You have to do this rule. I don't have to. I'm above it. I'm special. Let them eat cake. You know where that comes from in history. It's common, and we should not be surprised when people become that. How many coworkers have you had in your life who railed against whoever, supervisor, management, and then they got there, and what did they do? They became the very thing they hated. Common, because now they have power and control. The church in the Middle Ages, rife with abuse. Why did the reformers come along? Abuse, the indulgences. You have to pay something, basically, to get out of your sin. They fought those who wanted to bring reformation in the church. Terrible sexual abuse. They abused the literacy in that they didn't want people to learn to read, especially once the Bible was being printed, because they wanted to hold the scriptures to speak it and interpret it for everyone else with no option for you to understand it for yourself. Think about the priests and nuns being cloistered, set aside, put in a situation that was abnormal, not right, and rife for abuse and illness and problem. The last hundred years, if we look at the last hundred years, the early 1900s, I believe that the rise of fundamentalism, um, got to kind of define that, I won't spend any time doing that, but basically trying to uh, treat the word, God's word as every word is actually literal. Some areas like the patriarchy, in which the husband is head of the home, without question as king, um, resulted in a lot of physical and sexual abuse within the home because it was unquestioned authority. The church could not even question a husband's authority. This was a time, too, I think, that uh, pastors, uh, the beginnings of pastors as autocrats. Um, I'm pastor of a church. I'm in charge of this church. It's not really been uncommon in my uh, life to hear people use the term that ex-pastor, well, he took this church. He, he took it, not in a negative sense, but he, he took the ministry of pastor. As if somehow the church belonged to him. Yeah, he took that church and then he took that church and he's in charge and he's the autocrat. This lays the groundwork for abuse, if we're not careful. In the 1940s, kind of a little bit out of fundamentalism was the rise of the, there's a lot of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement opened the door to the whole realm of, quote, being led by the Spirit, often to the exclusion of biblical principles. And, you know, you probably don't even realize the, uh, a lot of Pentecostalism in this part of Ohio and Indiana. There's a rich history of a lot of things that became very abusive, terribly abusive. Um, I know of one place a professor came out of Grace College in Warsaw, Indiana and set up this um, church that got rather big and they did not believe in taking your children to the doctor because you're going to pray for healing. After 50 children died over several years, authorities got involved and had to shut the place down. That's abuse of the worst kind. Inerrant doctrine 
leaders telling you how, you how you must live and do things that the scripture does not allow you. And finally, um, in the past 30 years, I think the rise of the megachurch has been particularly troubling with respect to abuse and problems. Now, I'm not against big churches at all, but if I say, can you think of an example, what would you most likely think of? Probably one of these big churches you've heard about, where there's been a big falling and um, big abuses found. Because it's a context that it's almost not even accountable, because you're not part of who the leaders are, you don't have access to the pastor a lot of times, so there's no direct accountability. And we're going to give you some really good examples here later. Not to pick on people, but I want to show you exactly what I'm talking about. Nevertheless, type or size of church does not dictate whether abuse is going to take place or not, having said all that. I believe one of the main drivers is bad theology, coupled with this deep desire of people to rule other people. Because we have to agree that we behave out of that that we believe, okay? People say, oh, doctrine's not important, but you're making a doctrine of whatever you're doing. You behave out of that which is in your mind. I believe it's okay for me to do X, Y, Z. Well, that's a doctrine. Whether you've ensconced it in a paper and put it on your church wall, doesn't matter. It's a doctrine. So what you believe you'll do, bad theology is at root of a lot of behavior in the church. So let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And I've got, I want to go through some passages with you this morning because obviously we don't want judgment by Tim. We want judgment by Scripture, okay? And that's the beauty of it. I'm not thinking up anything new. I'm not creating any new standards. We're just looking at the Word and seeing what God says to watch out for and, and who to watch out for. And even in our own hearts, what to watch out for. So where do we start? Well, we start in Scripture. The deepest core of Christ's compassion, the deepest core of Christ is compassion. I think we all agree with that. Do you see that in your leaders? Do you see that in leaders? Because as leaders move away from compassion and love, these things can begin to happen. 1 Peter 5.1 says, So I exhort the elders among you as, fellow, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. It's interesting, and you'll see in these passages uh, about what's expected of leaders is specific concepts of not shameful gain, not domineering, not controlling, those three areas we talked about to begin with. And here it reinforces that. Should not be domineering. And if I ask you to describe what does it feel like when someone's trying to domineer you? Would you, is there an easy definition? It's not really easy, right? 
you could give it examples because it's mostly, it's mostly a feeling you sense when someone's trying to dominate you and someone's trying to exert power on you that's perhaps inordinate. But you know it when you see it, right? You know it when you see it. And so we as leaders are not to be trying to domineer people, but we're to be examples. When you begin to see leaders not doing what they're expecting their congregants to do, you have a problem. You have a problem. In 1 Thessalonians 2.5, Paul says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you and you not only of the gospel of God, but with our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. So I think that's the kind of picture that we're striving for between congregants and leaders. And, and as I said before, I think as the larger a church gets, the more that's difficult. So you have to work to make that fit. Is there a dearness between the leaders and the people that matters, that is tangibly shown and provable? And if there's not, then perhaps we should take note and ask about that. Jesus models servant leadership in John 13 when he washes the disciples' feet including the one that was about to betray him. While it is symbolic, it reels the heart of Christ toward his followers. And I think that the book Nick has been uh, encouraging us to read, um, Gentle and Lowly, really hits, hits at that, like Jesus' servitude in his heart for us and how he's always responding even when we sin and fall. His first impulse is not judgment. His first impulse is grace. And it's really a powerful explanation of that. So that's kind of what we should be looking for in church leadership. There are standards, there are expectations, but there should be some comfort level like, man, I blew it. I, you know, I, I need some grace. I need to work through this. I need some help. That should be in existence. But that doesn't mean sometimes things don't happen because of it. In my church history, I've seen a few times in which people were pulled out of ministry because of personal hidden sin that's come forth in their life. So it, there's ramifications for sin, but there should be some sense that there's compassion because the whole point of the compassion is that our hearts are changed and we're renewed. I mean, how many times have you and I had to be renewed in our walk with Christ again and again and again? And, and actually, Sunday is a picture of that. Why do we march through this process? Every week, we come, we sing, we hear the word. Because we're renewing that which we know, that which we have. So we're strengthened again because we're really pretty weak. And so that's what we should be seeing in a Christ-filled ministry. Renewal, compassion, grace. And sometimes when there is sin, it has to be dealt with also. And we've talked about some of that with regard to abuse that might happen in the church, that we will be dealing with it. We know that the compassion of Jesus does not 
fit this cultural Jesus meek and mild thing at all. We, we hold on to two realities at one time. The compassion of Christ and the judgment of Christ in our life. You know, when I was, when I was a fire chief, a few times I had to threaten people with being arrested because of the way they were behaving on an emergency scene. Because I had the authority to do so if they were in the way. That's not an uncommon situation. But does that mean I had no... And it might be the person who's actually involved in the problem and the victim. Does that mean I had no compassion on them? Of course, it didn't mean that at all. It meant getting control so that the problem can be dealt with and they can be made as whole as possible. It doesn't seem that way in the minute. But I didn't create the problem, but I had to deal with it. And a lot of times in a church, leaders didn't create the problem, but they got to deal with it. So we hold on to both of those things at the same time. So I want you to turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, because this is a call to all of us as we consider the specifics of what we might see in abuse of the church because we're all subject to the same temptations and we're all subject to the same rules. 1 Thessalonians 4, 6. For it is God's will that you should be holy. You must abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you must know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Not in youthful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and no one should ever violate or exploit his brother in this regard, because the Lord will avenge all such acts, as we have already told you and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us to impurity, but to holiness. Anyone, then, who rejects this command does not reject man, but God, the very one who gives you his Holy Spirit. So when we challenge people based upon how they behave in sinful ways, it's not because the command comes from us, it's because it comes from God and God's word. As long as we keep it in those two guardrails, we'll be safe. But furthermore, Matthew 7, 15 says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. I want to turn to that in my Bible for a minute because I found something interesting about that I hadn't seen before, Matthew 7, in verse 15. So you're reading about judging others. Um, I'm get the right place here. You're reading about a tree and its fruit, and Matthew's writing about being aware of false leaders, and he, you know, he makes it pretty clear, um, not with specifics, but the principle that there will be false leaders in amongst you. And then in verse 21, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This passage 
about bearing fruit and false witnesses is followed by the passage that says, not all of them are going to be in the kingdom. That's, that should really be frightful for leaders to question themselves and say, you know, am I doing what God has called me to do? Or am I falsely, you know, I have a false idea about who I am because, well, things are happening. I'm doing great ministry. I'm doing good works. I was casting out demons, all these things. And yet, Jesus said, I never knew you. I never knew you at all. That passage was directed at leaders. And I had never quite seen that before. We know it's true for all of us, of course, but the onus is particularly on leaders as I read this passage. Romans 16, verse 8 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but our own appetites. Sometimes we break fellowship with people who cause division. Sometimes we have to do that even in our personal lives, at certain ways. So as we're thinking about a couple of examples, I want to say that whenever the first response to a conflict about power, abuse, or negative things in the church, power, abuse, negative things, whatever it is, if the first response, and I said this two weeks ago, if it's this is coming from the devil, you are likely dealing with an authoritarian, a manipulator, or a fool. And those are my words. I said likely. Nothing is overarching 100%. But when you hear that comment, or let's soften it, you hear immediately the first thing is excuses that don't seem to hold water. Be very wary, no matter who it is. How many times do you hear stories again and again and again? Maybe some of you have had this happen in a past marriage or brothers and sisters about something they're doing you know for sure, and they deny, they deny, they deny, they deny, and finally, when all else fails, they admit what they did. And this seems to happen constantly in the church and in the world. When that starts to happen, that is a sign to you to take note. Take note. Here's, another, here's a great example of a manipulator, and this just happened in the last few months. A pastor of a large megachurch recently had this response to a life-threatening medical condition that he had. And I took this quote from Church and Ministry News. This pastor said, I believe God for complete healing. That's fine. It has been a great honor of my life to pastor this church. That's fine. It's ingratiating, eh? I can say... As you are all sowing today, or giving your money, I want you to sow at a level of faith and a level of expectation you've never had before. Because I tell you, this is an illegal transaction of hell, this sickness. And it will not stand. And since the enemy tried to steal my life, he owes me sevenfold. And what's on me is on the house. 
Now, thousands of people listen to this person and respond accordingly. Can you imagine me laying in a hospital bed, likely dying, sending you a Facebook message, you need to sow like you need to give to this ministry and me like you've never given before. You would immediately know something was wrong with that. And yet, this happens every week all over the country in different places. What's on me is on the house. That person is so important. I say that's abusive. That's not biblical. And you have every right to speak against it, and you have every right to run from it. All right. I want to turn to Titus chapters 2 and 3. This will be my last passage to look at here. And you know, I, you know me well enough. My heart in this matter is not to be smirch a bunch of people out there. I, I'm frankly not interested in that. I'm too old for that. I've been too through, much, through too much for that. Maybe there was a day. I'm not interested. What my heart is in, all the people I've seen damaged over many decades of my Christian life by these types of things. It breaks my heart, and I hate it. I hate that so many people are damaged and hurt and scarred and have decided that, you know, this Christian thing isn't worth it and walked away because of abuse in the church. How much worse can that be? In some ways, it's easier to deal with the drunk on the street. They know they're a sinner. They know they're in a wreck, usually, than someone who's walked away and said, you people are sick. I'm out of here. You, probably, you may never get them back. And that's what motivates me here. That's what motivates me. So we're not going to read all this, but this is, as you know, Titus 2 and 3 are words from Paul to Titus about being an elder in the church. For example, in chapter 2, verse 1, he said, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then Paul goes to lay out some things. Be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, the word of God, not be reviled. Good public reputation. And at the very end, in verse 15 of chapter 2, this is what I want you to see. After he says all of this exhortation, how to live and how to be, he says, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. What I see happen often is leaders want to go right to verse 15 and say, well, I'm rebuking, I'm, you're under authority, and I have this authority to rebuke you because God gave it to me as a leader. While at the same time, they're not fulfilling the rest of chapter 2 at all, or mostly. And my answer to that is, well, when I see some fulfilling of chapter 2, then perhaps maybe I'll let you be my authority in the church. And we need more people like that, frankly, in our churches that say, wait a minute, wait a minute. You did, you're doing X, Y, Z, which clearly violates scripture. And now you're losing your authority to speak into my life. And we need more of that. So I'm going to give you some specific, four specific ideas here in just a minute.
But I was thinking about this whole idea, and I would love to develop it deeper on a personal level. Why do people want control over other people? It's there, we see it, we deal with it every day. And a, a kind of a good example is this whole cultural idea that socialism might really be a good thing, you know, to have the government run everything. There's degrees, and you can argue over that. But the basic atheistic, the basic godless idea about socialism is that we want to control everything that happens through the force of government. And if you ask the question, well, we have 100 years of this grand experiment in which hundreds of millions of people have been killed in this effort to control society, and what's, the, what's usually the answer? Is, well, we know how to do it right. We'll get it right this time. We're not going to do it like they did it. But what's the problem with that? They'll do it like they did. Because ultimately, if you're going to control other people, what's it come down to? The very end. What's it come down to? Torture, murder, imprisonment, force at every level. There's no other way to control the mass of humanity. And then you never will. Well, I think it's sort of like that mentality, like in the church. Like, okay, we see all the abuses of that 100 years ago. We talked about, you know, all these terrible things they did and they did. But, you know, we're going to get this authority thing right in the church. We'll figure it all out, and we'll be able to run our church like it's supposed to be run because we're so much smarter, and we've got the Holy Spirit, and we're going to know. And we don't need this as much because God talks to me every day. Same thing. Blindness, blinded by their own desire to control people. So four things we need to be able to do. Discern between responding to a leader's Discern between responding to conviction that you feel, honest conviction by the Holy Spirit, versus a leader's demand. Holy Spirit, word speaking to me, leader's demand, seems conflict. Or the leader's demand is something I don't even see in Scripture, or I never had any personal conviction about. Like if I say, hey Rick, the Lord told me you're supposed to be the church accountant. And you say, well, it's not really my gifting. Well, that's why you're supposed to be the church count, because then you'll be fully relying on the word of God or God's work in you to do it right. What's going to happen? I'm not going to cut on you, Rick. Because he, I don't know, he might be a great church accountant. But if it's not his gifting, he might do a terrible job, and then we'll be in legal jeopardy, okay? So the leader's demand transcended what he felt he should or should not do his calling, common sense even. So always be willing to think about your conviction that you see in the word and in what God's doing in your life versus some demand put upon you. It's okay for you to do that. We want you to do that. Do you easily recognize, number two, boundaries of authority in a leader's expression of opinion? When a leader expresses their opinion about things, do you recognize boundaries? What does that look like? Do you feel like this opinion is something you're supposed to automatically adopt? Or an opinion about how you live, which doesn't fit the picture of how they think you should live? Like being told you can't take a job that ever takes you away from Sunday morning, ever. That's not God's will for your life. Well, that's your opinion but sorry, I'm not having it. And I didn't. I had a job that made me work Sunday mornings. 
But you know what I did? I took a lot of vacation time on Sunday morning so I could come to church. So recognize boundaries of authority in what your leader's opinions are. If it's in scripture, it's pretty clear. If it says homosexuality is a sin, it's a sin. It's not an opinion, it's, it's, it's in the word. It's an easy one. Thirdly, am I encouraged to think independently for myself as a believer, faithful to Christ, in the word, single, married, young adult, doesn't matter. Am I allowed to think for myself without being judged? And lastly, here's an interesting one. Expressions of anger toward people from a leader tend to demonstrate a frustrated desire to control you, right? Now, could I get angry at somebody in here? Maybe I have in a moment about something that's transient. Yes, I could, and it would be sinful. But I'm talking about anger that's often from up here toward a congregation or toward people that shows frustration with being unable to control what we want. So for example, let's just use a present day example. You know, we struggle to have Sunday school program because we have lots of children, not so many adults to teach Sunday school. Plus, you know, we have a, you have to be a member to teach Sunday school. So we have limited people, lots of children, not a new thing, common in other churches. So we have two choices. We say, as we do, here's the need, can you help? Please consider it. Or do I stand up here for 10 minutes and throw scriptures at you and pound you in frustration and anger until you go, okay, I will. Yeah, you've seen that. I don't want you even to raise your hands. We're not doing number two here. We're not doing it. <laughs> okay, yeah, I know you have, little guy. We're not doing it. So when you see anger directed at the flock, something's wrong. Something's really wrong. That's not compassion of Christ. So pay attention. Some of our words on your word uh, puzzle are signs, pressure, intimidation, manipulation, passive-aggressive, anger. I remember one place that told people when they left the church that there's a curse on you and you very well may die. And there was one place in particular that a family left and two months later, uh, I think the mom died in a car wreck. And they went, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you imagine that? It's real. All right, so here's another example, and then I'll get finished up here. Present day example, it's going on right now. There was a past, another pastor of a large church who had all this stuff with women, drunkenness going on for three, four years. Well, finally, one of the spurned people brought it up, and, and so they made him leave for a little bit. But here's, here's a tack they took. They announced that he's taking time off to get counseling and spend time with God. And updated it a couple weeks later that he's in great spirits. He's prayed up, he's diving into the word, and he's getting that fever to get back out there and get in the pulpit again and get to us. And my response to that is, mm, no, not at all. Maybe late, maybe something else, sometime else, but no, whoa. Very common response. 
When he came back, he confessed to his congregation he was involved in an inappropriate relationship and asked for forgiveness. And he said, before I preach a word today, I've just come to say I'm sorry. So many things I've said that I've done that I've not said that I've run from were wrong. I was involved in this relationship. I put you through embarrassment, heartache, and confusion. I've wounded people. I've caused devastation I can never take back. As your leader and pastor, I come to you to publicly acknowledge my mistakes and ask for your forgiveness. And then he got divorced, and he's right back in the pulpit. That easy. That's abuse of the word of God as far as I'm concerned. I didn't sin. I didn't hear the word sin in there anywhere, did you? All right. So one more kind of firm statement I want to take out of this book for you as we think about Leviticus 25, 17, which says, You shall not wrong another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. The author writes in this book, Any church leader who feels themselves, who feeds themselves, rather than feeding the sheep, is a counterfeit shepherd. Anyone in a position of power within the body of Christ who abuses a lamb or hides the abuse done to one the good shepherd knows and calls by name has profaned the name of God. God stands against them just as he did the shepherds in Ezekiel 34. Should not his church stand with him against such shepherds? Yet if we say anything, we say, ah, it was a mistake. The leader's under a lot of stress. Aren't we supposed to forgive and forget? God's people have continued supporting corrupt shepherds and have failed to deliver the flock from danger. And that's what happens a lot of times. How can we imagine abuse of the sheep that God loves and calls by name under our noses? How can we let that continue to go on by perpetrators? Shouldn't happen. And finally, I wanted to give you a concept um, I didn't write my uh, book and chapter down. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as, shepherd, as the shepherd separates, separates the sheep from the goats as a shepherd separates a sheep from the goats. That was from our earlier passage. When we, are, when we are having to deal with someone in our church, our life, another church, if you're acting like a goat, then you're going to get treated like a goat. And I thought maybe a good way to describe how to do this, because things happen and we don't always have all the facts yet. It's hard to render judgment sometimes initially, so we have to be very careful about what we do with people, especially people in our midst. But sometimes if you're behaving like a goat, we're, maybe we're going to send you to like the fence out there a little bit. Okay, You're not outside the fence. Well, maybe we'll tie you to the fence. And we'll come get you after a while. We'll feed you. We'll water you. We're going to pray with you. We're going to do all the things we need to do. But for the protection of the flock, until we're certain you're not a goat, we might send you over here. Is that, that's crude, of course. But I think it's helpful to see that we don't have deep sin. When it's deep sin in the midst of a church, you don't just paper over it, forgive and forget and move on. 
Because there's goats. There's false shepherds. And the Bible says it's so hard to tell sometimes, we don't even know till the end. So we have to operate accordingly. So hopefully, nobody's ever going to have to tie us to the fence on the outside of the sheep pen, okay? But that's why we do what we have to do. 2 Peter 2.1 in closing. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought, bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of the way, the, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. And so we see that around us at times. We see that in churches, places we can't control. We know how much it damages the kingdom. But what we want to do is be a people that engenders the word of Christ and follow it. If we each do that individually, and your leaders do that, and we're leaders that are seen with compassion, openness, not hiding anything, not lording it over, then we'll be a church that God really can bless well. And people won't be harmed, and people will be helped. And that's my hope always, is that we can be that kind of church and that kind of people. And I do think in the current climate that is going on, if you know people that find themselves in a situation, get with them, pray. Pray for healing. Rescue those people that are teetering about their faith, perhaps, because of church abuse, because there's a lot of them out there. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you love us so much. You warn us about what's waiting for us if we're not vigilant. Father, we also know that it's deep within our heart to want to control people. We want so much to be the king, king of our lives, king of every sphere that we work in. And Father, we pray you break us of that, that you teach us because of your loving compassion, you have a perfect way that we can trust in, that we can relax, that we can follow. We can work through hard times. We can work with hard people. We can work with an imperfect church because we know you've called us to each of these places to do what we do. And Father, we pray for protection from wolves and from goats. Give us a wisdom how to, how to do things in church in a practical way, in our own lives, how to, be, how to deal with things so that we're wise and yet compassionate. Help us, Father, in all these things we pray. Amen.